Welcome back to the Employee Safety Podcast. I'm Peter Steinfeld. Today's guest is Tracy Kajewski-Korea, Structural Engineer and Associate Professor at the University of Notre Dame. I wanted to have Tracy on the show because of her expertise in disaster risk reduction and structural safety. She was involved in some major disaster recoveries, including the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia and the 2010 Haiti earthquake. As you'll hear in today's episode, a lot of her research is focused on understanding structural response related to natural disasters. She shares some incredible stories, including her fascinating research on the recent tornado outbreak in the Midwest that just dominated the headlines back in December. I also thought that Tracy offered incredibly helpful insights about building safety, including some common misconceptions about building codes. Let's get into it. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Tracy, you've been involved in numerous projects to improve and enhance the sustainability of buildings and other infrastructure out there. What inspired you to get involved in this type of work? Well, you know, if you talk to a structural engineer, they're often going to tell you they built Legos as a child. And that was certainly my case. What was different about my story is at age 10, the Mexico City earthquake hit. And I remember watching that on ABC News uh, with my grandpa and seeing the search for victims. And it was um, a search specifically in a hospital, a place where people go to get better. And in this case, they had lost their lives. And it just really, it hit me. I was about 10 years old and living in the shadow of Chicago. I thought, wow, we could build these amazing cities. And yet this is happening still in our world. And I just think that awe for what nature could do, but also that question of, well, why can't we do better? It stuck with me from age 10. So that's the, the unique part of my story. And so I took my Legos to work on something that many engineers perhaps don't. And that was disasters. That's a fantastic story. Well, what drew you to the educational and academic elements of your work? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because when you work this close to, you know, real pain and suffering in the world, there's often a pull about whether I should go into practice and directly work on this with people on the ground or stay in academia. And I would say that while that question came up many times in my career, March 2010, about six weeks after the Haiti earthquake, I was I was literally ready to quit and move out into Haiti. I was in the tent cities, just moved and really wanted to to do my part. And, and my partner reminded me in a very powerful conversation that one person can only do so much. But if you have the position to train and influence others, in our case, as educators, build an army, generations of people who can carry on the work, your reach can actually be much greater. And the only reminder I had in that moment, I understood then the potential for scale and reach, but I also understood that I would have a responsibility then not to be an ivory tower academic. I couldn't just stay there in my intellectual world and touch the brightest minds with, you know, hypotheticals and theories. I really had to keep them in touch with the issues society was facing with a constant mind toward, well, how do we implement that to actually make change, not just study it from afar and in that tower? So I would say that I had to have that philosophy follow me through the rest of my career. And I, I've been lucky then to achieve that scale now as an educator. And is that normal in the academic world or do most people choose to stay in the theory and in the tower and not get out in the field? Or do you find there's a nice blend? Help our audience understand that. 
I wish there was more of a blend. I'll be candid. Some of the brightest minds in the world are in higher education. In my opinion, the incentives are misaligned to take the risk and work on the ground. It's unpredictable. It's riddled with challenges. It's much safer to sit in your office and write your book alone. And so I think there are some perils that unfortunately we haven't incentivized well, but I would appeal to any academics out there to see that value in giving back to society and get closer to the ground. You'll solve more important problems and in more lasting ways when you get out of that tower. Yeah, you learn so much more. You know, oh, when, yeah. when you jump into the ring and you start getting punched in the face, it's like, oh, <laughs> oh. Now you <laughs> okay. know how we feel. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Well, what's most surprising or perhaps alarming about the discoveries that you and your teams have made throughout the years? You know, it probably is the same discovery that drove that 10 year old girl we have a way to build that hospital not to collapse. We have a way to do all of this from a technological perspective. So that loss of life and property that we see, it is preventable. But the reality is we live in a resource-constrained world. We have priorities we have to balance and not infinite time and money to take care of it all. And so I think the, the challenge that I've always faced is knowing that we have the knowledge to build better and to do better and to live safer lives, but that's confronted by the realities of finite resources and time and human behavior, which sometimes is difficult to predict. So I think for me, you know, the big takeaways I, I've made over the years have really pushed me increasingly to understand the barriers we face as organizations, as governments, and even as individuals in comprehending and absorbing risk and then being able to engage in implementing the guidance that's out there in a way that works within our constraints and our resources and our abilities. And I think sometimes as engineers, we forget that last step, being able to implement it really means delivering solutions people can afford, they can understand, and they can easily implement. And a lot of what we've done over the years have not has not been easy to achieve in that regard. So the technology is there, the implementation is lacking, and for really good reasons that requires engineers to, I think, work harder to find solutions that the public can uptake more readily. And that's the, the reality of it. Yeah, it's all the more reason for someone that's in a field like yours to get out in the field because you can exactly. come up with all sorts of great ideas in the lab and then you get out there and go, oh, for this yeah. political reason, we can't do that. Or exactly. people just won't adopt that. Mm -hmm. And they don't comprehend that or they won't spend that much money on that. But if we innovate a slightly different way and deliver the message differently, you can see uptake. And we need to therefore not be in our silo any longer and really understand those realities on the ground. You know, as a, as a layman, just looking in from the outside, it seems like most of these codes and things like that, that people build to these days, they only do it because for political or legal reasons, like, okay, we have to, it's a code. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty consistent still today as in the past or are things changing? Are people like, no, 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 no. I, I see to be a forward looking builder. I'm going to start adopting and doing things that I'm not even required to do necessarily. That's the way we want it to the direction we want to go. Let's just think about the history of this all right. Building codes came about because of loss of life. We were losing lives and disasters and we needed a better way to manage and mitigate those risks and building codes provide a minimum standard for what's called life safety to protect a life. The part that I think a lot of people don't realize is that that history of where codes come from did not therefore care about significant damage to that structure. So meaning it wouldn't be open for operation the next day. People could be long-term displaced. Business could be long-term disrupted. The goal was save lives. But we can check that box down. We're doing really well at saving lives. We still lose lives and it's tragic, but by and far, we have ways to now manage those risks in thoughtful ways. So now the question becomes, are we comfortable just settling for surviving? Or do we want to thrive? Are we comfortable getting out alive or having a business or home to come back to the next day and reopen and get our community running again? And I think the needle is now moving in America toward that idea of functional recovery 
immediate operation and what's now called performance-based design. Let's set goals beyond survival and let's go to the performance that we're hoping for as a company or you know, as a government or even as a homeowner. What do I want my home to achieve the next time a hurricane comes through? And that would actually cause you to design above the code, above those minimums that we have to save lives. And so that's the proposition out there is will people go above that minimum standard because of the value out of knowing my children aren't displaced, my community is not shut down for a year or 10 years in the case of some of the places where I've worked. And that's this idea of what we call code plus or designing above the code or for a performance-based level above survival. Well, if you think about it from a business perspective, it can certainly be a competitive advantage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we need to make that proposition more attractive. Now, the key issue is, do people realize that? Mm. Or do we create false security that when they think, oh, my building's built a code, I'm fine. And they don't understand that behind the scenes of that code were some decisions made to make economically viable to design to a lower level so that it was approachable for people at all price points and not you know, reveal that in the process, we allowed a lot of damage to happen, right? And may still happen. And you didn't realize that because you thought you were quote up to code. So I think we probably need to communicate that better to help owners make a more informed decision about when they would go beyond that minimum standard, because it is just a minimum, to have that business continuity, for example, that might be equally important to them. Well, let's break that down a little bit. What does all that mean for our listeners? How can safety leaders or perhaps facility managers ensure their buildings are up to code and safe their employees and operations or beyond code, code plus, as you said? Well, I think the first thing to understand is if I were to apply the, what we call the modern codes, what's called the model building codes, these are from the International Code Council. And the first thing I'll caveat is every state has to adopt those, doesn't have to, but they make a choice to. Your state may not be adopting the latest codes. So the first thing is to understand what is binding where we are right now and how out of date is that with the latest model code from the ICC. That gives you an understanding. Therefore, if my building was built in 1973, how many cycles out of date is my building actually? Because codes don't retrofit existing buildings. They apply to new construction generally. So as a result, you may be sitting there not realizing that you're now 10 cycles out of date with the latest engineering guidance. So step one is just understanding your risk and knowing how far out of date you are as a professional or as an owner of a building by comparing to the current standard and where you are today. And, and speaking to design professionals, they can help you understand that. The second is sitting down and saying the scenarios. What do we want to be on day one after a major disaster, right? And in every part of the country, there's a different hazard you're facing. Could be a tornadoes, could be hurricanes, could be an earthquake. But I think doing some scenario-based planning is good due diligence to understand where we want to be in operations, obviously safety and security of our employees or our tenants. But then where do we want to be on day one? day 10, you know, day 365 after an event, how fast do we want to recover? That conversation about your goals, your performance goals may lead you beyond the code, may lead you to retrofit your structure to achieve that higher level performance. Because again, you may not have realized that not only are you out of date, but again, that the code only guaranteed survival and your goal is being open for business in seven days. Well, that's going to create a very different set of performance standards for the physical structure the contents inside, your operations and systems that operate within that footprint, and then the way you move and manage your employees leading up to the event and immediately after. I think all those things have to be evaluated. And I like scenarios, sitting down with scenarios and doing that exercise to think through what you hope for, and then talking to a design professional to see if the building could actually achieve that. Generally speaking, is it difficult or expensive to go through that analysis process? 
You know, in my opinion, I do not think it's as expensive as people believe. And, and I think it speaks to the fact that buildings aren't just built on day zero. You maintain them and operate them over the entire life cycle. So if you're doing due diligence on repairing, retrofitting, or upkeep of your building as part of a normal maintenance or service cycle, I would just build this into it. Mm-hmm. I would not just be looking at, oh, it's time to replace the windows for the energy bill. During that conversation that you might be having every five years as you do an upkeep or you know a reinvestment on the property, let's have a conversation about other scenarios that worry us. I think sometimes we don't talk about those big events but those are the ones that cause the disruption, the life loss. We might focus again on the energy bill, remodeling certain spaces for aesthetics, and we may forget to add to that checklist an assessment of where we are against those scenarios that would keep us up at night. So I would say let's build that into the natural retrofitting and maintenance process because once it's tucked into that, it's not an additional cost substantively since we're already doing that regular upkeep and maintenance uh, periodically anyway. Yeah, you almost have to change how you look at exactly. an asset like that. It's like a living thing that needs to be tended Precisely. to. Precisely. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's just a mistake that like, oh, it's day zero, it's constructed, it's done. No, it is a continuous investment to make sure it's performing at the levels you expect day to day in the service life, as we call it, and in those extreme events where performance is everything, it's life and death. Yeah, I mean, it's like my car. I I hope on the day I buy it, I never have to do anything to it ever again. Uh-huh. We all know that's not true. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, I mean, building it, and I think you hit it perfectly, Building into the culture, the way we think about managing that asset is, is critical. Think of it just like you do with your health, right? There's regular maintenance and things you should be checking on, including that intensive scan that makes you a little nervous where they're going to check for maybe scary things, but getting that done once in a while could be the difference between, let's say, cancer and survival. So it's worth doing it on a periodic basis. Yeah. And increasing that frequency as the asset gets older. As the asset gets older <laughs> or as the hazard landscape changes. There we go. That's another thing we got to think about, right? There's a lot of changes happening, especially in coastal areas, areas prone to flooding, or as our colleagues see in the wildfire prone zones, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think as much as we control our buildings and our investments, the physical infrastructure, there's a lot changing around us with development and weather patterns that we have to be aware of, right? And as Noah's shown us, the last two years, we've broken records for billion dollar plus events, more of them happening every year than we've ever seen in history. So there are things changing and we need to be cognizant of both sides of that equation, what's around us and what's within us and look at both of those when making these decisions. And you just mentioned something interesting. You said that the assets that we own or something to that effect. So what about the organizations that lease their buildings and don't outright own them? What does it mean for them? You know, it is, that is a big challenging factor, right? Because you might think, gosh, I don't have much power here. And, you know, When you look at the research that has been done, it is clear that among the stakeholders in the building industry, tenants and title holders, so occupiers and owners of the property, they have the most to benefit from making the investments upfront proactively to bring that building into a better condition for resistance to extreme events. So owner-occupied properties are the easiest sell, right? Because they immediately benefit. Now, the landlord situation is more challenging, right? Because we have to create a different set of incentives around that. So one of the things to think about here is, first of all, understanding within your lease, what are my responsibilities in an extreme event and what is on the shoulders of you know, my landlord in terms of restoration and recovery after an extreme event? It's something you probably don't think about when you enter into lease agreement. I'd want to know that, especially if I'm in a hurricane zone. So first, just knowledge and awareness. And then the second part that I, I think you know would hopefully come from that is that would bring then a conversation to the forefront with the landlord and understanding that relationship and those responsibilities. But then I would step back and look at 
what parts of that leased property do I actually have control over? Because some of the measures it takes to survive, particularly a hurricane, are things you might be able to control. For example, uh, making sure the windows are covered in the landfalling event has a huge impact on whether or not the structure survives and the contents are preserved. Backup power and other things are sometimes within the control of the tenant to, to kind of dictate. So I would also have a conversation with my landlord to find out where the boundaries are between things that I might take the step forward to invest in as a short-term measure, wouldn't be a permanent modification, but a, a temporary modification to that particular space that would preserve my business functionality and continuity and understand how we could get those in. And then the last thing that I would put on the table is creating some pressure in the market for us to showcase and reward landowners or, or landlords who invest in this kind of feature, just like we market green or lead certified features, mm, right? Yep. Yeah. When a landlord's marketing that this is a, you know, a lead standard building, it's on the cutting edge of sustainability, I'd love to start creating pressure saying, well, is it on the cutting edge of safety? And I'd love to see that be a marketable feature. And the more we create demand for that in the market, we can start then creating the carrots that make that something a landlord sees as a distinctive feature. And therefore, we'll take some additional you know, effort into putting in. But that's a long-term market shift that needs to happen. Every conversation to start asking those questions and demanding it. In the short term, find the boundaries of what you control and see if you can push to at least take those measures or create some internal pressure on the landlord to understand the liabilities they have if your business is substantively discontinued due to a negligence on their part. Yeah. No, I think the market will shift that way just because, as you said, there's more and more damage happening out there. And Absolutely. Unfortunately, bad news sells. And when people see something, they're like, oh, I didn't think about that before, but now I see why that's important. Yep. So the conversations are the first step and, and you might not get as far as you hope, but the more we have those conversations, it becomes the norm. Yeah. Yeah. How does your research impact or perhaps evoke change in structural safety? And is there anything our listeners can do within their own organizations? So, yeah, I really have been thinking about this a lot lately. So I'm glad you asked. And the reason I've been thinking about it is because the totality of communications to date has focused on do these things to avoid big costs in the future. And those are far off benefits, if you will. But when I have to upgrade my facility, my building, I've got to invest today. That's coming out of my pocket, my bottom line. And you're telling me that may not pay off ever. It'll pay off if the big hurricane comes. But what if it doesn't? What we've seen is what we really have to start doing now is looking at how we incentivize safety and make it a part not only of the culture, but make it pay rewards today so that you get a short-term benefit for the long-term thing I want us all to do, which is build our structures more safely so we don't have the problem when the big one comes two decades later. But that, again, means that we have to create a culture and a marketplace that values that. So what we would like to see is a greater valuation in the real estate market for safe construction. And as I told people, we value the kitchenette, we value the nice breakout room, we value the IT, and now we value sustainability and energy star, all of these things that are showing greater stewardship for the environment. Shall we not do the same valuation in this idea of safety and, and resilience to disaster. In that regard, I would love to see that coming through as a key marketable feature on a property and something that we start creating, again, conversations around, valuing. And as our research is now showing, owners are telling us, if I would get an upgrade in the market value of my property, if I see resale value rise, because I'm going to sell this property in five, 10 years, I'm going to make the investment because it's increased the value. But if you're telling me to do all of this and I see no return on that investment in the market, why should I do it when I have other priorities or other things that are valued more? 
So I think we've really started to create a culture shift around how much we value and, and put our money where our mouth is in valuing properties that lead to a standard of safety as the hallmark of, of that property. And I'd love to see developers market that like they market, again, the amenities we've gotten used to seeing as, as valuable in properties. Yeah. How does that spark start? Is it through the developers? Is it through the commercial real estate agents? I want to go with real estate. We've looked at the research that asks questions about when we give um, insurance policy incentives, like credits ah. on your insurance, credits on your taxes. Does yes. that move the needle? Answer is no. Part of the reason it doesn't move the needle, they're just too small. And they mm. would take 10 years to maybe you know accumulate to paying off that initial investment. Second problem is that both of those stakeholders, insurers, as well as the, you know, the tax collector, don't have much incentive to reach out to you and tell you you deserve credit. So they kind of hide the credits, they make them hard to get. And most people deserving them actually don't get it. So that's, that's not working. The incentives are not lining up. So I think we should move toward looking at, you know, real estate and specifically the realtors, the people who are out there marketing properties and the developers who are advertising assets, right, that they make a property attractive. So I think real estate agents, and, and that would be the first area I'd like to penetrate. We've talked about looking at things like Zillow mm. and saying, like, could you showcase on Zillow listings? some positive features. I don't want to punish the properties that are, um, let's say not as safe. I don't want to right. create sticks, but can you create carrots that celebrate this structure also has these features that will make it, you know, immediately operational after a major hurricane, right? Back of power, all these things. I think we've got to start marketing those again, as proudly as a granite countertop, right? As high efficiency lighting. So I, I want to move towards real estate agents and, and the real estate industry and in, in trying to create some value behind that. Well, what projects have you been focused on recently? Yeah, so we've been doing quite a few things after the Mayfield tornado. That's another example where we're trying to create some big industry shifts. In our country, we decided that you can't design for a tornado. That's just been the way we've looked at it because they are so powerful and so unpredictable. But what we actually found quite fascinating in Mayfield is two things. The first is that most tornadoes in the United States and even most of the damage in the Mayfield event, though there was the one powerful EF4 that hit Mayfield and got a lot of attention, that was a giant outbreak. And the majority of what I think it's going to be 18 billion in losses is actually being generated by smaller intensity tornadoes. Most of the losses in the US are by the little guys. And it turns out that the wind speeds from those little guys are actually comparable to the wind speeds you see in a, in a hurricane on the, on the coast. So all the things we know to do in states like Florida that work well in stopping losses, if you took those same techniques of construction and those same products for you know, creating a more resilient building envelopes or skins over to the tornado exposed areas, you would have losses dramatically fall and life loss even fall. And then the second thing is then you need to have sheltering. We learned that with the Amazon warehouse failure, unfortunately, the candle factory, some notable commercial stories uh, of where these structures uh, did not perform as we had hoped. And maybe we're sheltering and evacuation guidance was not perhaps well communicated. Lots of litigation gonna happen in those cases. But what we did see as the success stories was that shelters, when they were there, they were working. And they didn't have to be fancy high-end shelters. In fact, we found homemade shelters that worked very well in protecting lives for the bigger tornadoes in that sequence, the EF3, 4, and 5 type uh, tornadoes. So it shows us we've got a lot of hope, actually, in taking what we've learned from hurricanes and mainstreaming it across more parts of the country to stop those accumulating small tornado losses, and even ways that we can standardize guidance on how to fortify specific rooms in buildings as safe rooms at affordable 
affordable costs, now seeing how some of the home-built strategies actually work and survive what was a very powerful tornado in Mayfield. Our second area that we're working on that I'm kind of excited about is working down in Louisiana after Hurricane Laura. As we've talked about, it's really hard to get people to invest in safety up front, and we're still trying to move the needle on it through better incentives. But one of the curiosities we have is how much do you seek to change your behavior and upgrade your property, reassess safety after a near miss? You know, when you're, you're sitting there on a sunny day, it's, it's easy to prioritize other things. And when you've been hit really hard, you might and hopefully think about building back better. But then there's a lot of people in that case study in Louisiana who watched a neighbor's house or a neighbor's property destroyed, a business destroyed, and they survived. But now are they thinking differently about safety, reappraising scenarios, thinking about upgrading their building after seeing the near miss? And if we can prove that their thinking is changing, we have a study of actually human behavior in the wake of that you know, hurricane and the multiple ones that followed. Louisiana has been hit like five times. We might be able to now see that after a major disaster, it's not just helping those who've been hit to build back better. It's reaching out to those who've survived and using it as an opportunity to incentivize more strategic evaluation of safety. And even you know that being the watershed moment where they're primed to think in ways we've been talking about in this podcast and make that upgrade, go through the scenario because it's fresh in their mind and they just saw it. And that might be the day they'll move the needle. Five years later, they may not, right? New priorities have surfaced. So we want to see if we can capitalize on these unfortunate events to start understanding how humans make decisions and move the knowledge much more quickly to help those who might invest with that rude wake-up call. Well, thinking back to the tornado example you gave, that's pretty interesting that we oftentimes think, oh, okay, this could happen. So on a scale of one to 10, I need to plan and pay for the 10. But the yeah. odds of that happening are really low. Unfortunately, people say, well, that was too expensive. So they do nothing. So they're nothing. at a zero. Why yes. don't we just get them to do a four or five? Exactly. <laughs> and that's what this idea, like with this idea of laying out your scenarios, understanding performance, part of that exercise is picking the scenario that you want to design for. So yeah, like you said, okay, don't mm. go for the giant EF5 or the Cat5 hurricane. That's going to be rare. Go for the one that's likely to occur over the timeline you're occupying that property or that you're owning that building. And then think about how that scenario would impact you because that all or nothing thinking, it paralyzes us, right? We totally. think too big, we're frozen. This idea of what they call dual objective design for tornadoes, because they are so horrifying, helps us to see what we can tackle, the smaller ones, which actually do, again, happen more often and cause more losses, and then have a sheltering option and an evacuation plan ready for the big one. And having both of those in our pocket lets us not be paralyzed by the, you know, the overwhelming nature of the big one, take actionable steps for the more likely one that, that we can control. Yeah. Well, in your experience, what should be the top priority for any organization right now in terms of ensuring structural safety? I think, you know, oddly enough to ensure structural safety, think beyond safety. Don't just think about survival. That's what the minimum codes are there for. So remember, building codes are minimums. They make sure you get out alive. They don't make sure that you can come back the next day. So as an organization, as an owner, whether it's your individual home, all the way up to a you know, major business complex, as an organization, understand if getting out alive is enough. 
And if getting out alive is not enough for your goals, if you want your home there tomorrow for your children to sleep in, if you want your business up and running three days after that major event, then you need to step through those scenarios and engage building industry professionals and understanding what it'll take to get to the performance goals because codes give you survival. They guarantee nothing more. So come to an understanding of those performance goals, what's called performance-based design, so that you think beyond the minimum, beyond survival and toward thriving. Well, you've definitely given us a lot to think about today. So thank you so much for being on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. How can our audience find out more about your work or get in touch with you? Yes, I think the best place to reach us, because we actually work on so many projects, but the STEER network, which is S-T-E-E-R dot network, is the home to the organization I run that does these major disaster responses and creates briefings and learnings from these events. Our work on Mayfield, as well as Hurricane Laura and many other calamities are at our STEER network website. Excellent. Well, thanks again to Tracy and to all of our listeners for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to subscribe to future episodes at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. You can also give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Stay safe out there. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.